I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. So the other day, I was drinking a cocktail called the Igloo. It was served in a one-foot-by-one-foot-by-one-foot cube of ice with a, an empty sphere in the middle. And the sphere was filled with the cocktail, and you drunk it through a straw that was stuck into the middle of this huge block of ice. And I wondered, what were some of the craziest drinks that other people have had? So I took to the streets to find out. What is the craziest drink you've ever had? I drank it a few weeks ago and it was a 1996 champagne but it wasn't sparkling and I'm big into like sour beer so it was like real funky and it was killer and uh, it's from Vuforni it was a Coteau Champenois Virtus Blanc Chardonnay I think it's really rare to find in the US I don't think anyone wants to import it if you ever find one try it Probably the coolest drink that I ever saw was my friend Celso where we were working out in the yard by the woods and it was a very hot humid summer day and we didn't have our coolers with her, with us, so Celso took uh, his machete and he chopped a big fat vine dangling down from a tree and drank a huge stream of fresh water coming out of the vine. So it was water in the woods while we were thirsty. That was the most outrageous drink I've ever had in my life. There was a couple of inches in a glass that looked exactly like apple juice. And I picked it up and swigged that, and it was a beer. So that was my first taste of beer. I think I must have had an obsession with apple juice because I thought everything that looked like it was apple juice. (laughs) Okay, Antoine's Restaurant, New Orleans, The Grasshopper. Cement mixer. It was uh, Bailey's and lime juice. And it curdles in your mouth. It was called The Combat. It was served in a metal shaker glass with vodka, rum, Southern Comfort, grenadine, and Sprite topped off with tap beer. I'm not really sure I finished it. On a rate of 1 to 10, what would you give that cocktail? What would you give the combat? 10. Wait, I thought you said you didn't finish it. I'm not sure I remember finishing it. I guess the combat defeated you. (laughs) And I'm sure you're all wondering, what is the craziest drink that Aaron's dad has ever had? And I think his answer just might win the prize for the craziest drink ever. You know, they're trying to talk to me about 
apple pie, white lightning. No, that's not me. I, I really don't like all that white lightning stuff. Back in the 60s, when I went into Vietnam, they brought in this wine, and the cobra, they, they would bring in a live cobra and cut its head off and pour it into the glass of wine, the blood. And you were supposed to drink that like a sign of machoism, you know. Did you? Oh, I wasn't going to wimp out on that. <laughs> so, yeah, I drank it. And, uh, but it's not my kind of thing. You know, that's the way it goes. There's cobras everywhere in Vietnam. It was, it was good. Uh, it was nourishing. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at OffsetPartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand mark hutchins on the show today hello sir how are you I, I feel great. I'm happy to be back in New York and happy to be on the show. Thank you so much, Levy. Great to have you here. So you're at Robert Hood Wines in Chicago now, which is an importer and distributor in that market? Correct. Yes. Robert and I launched Robert Hood Wines about uh, five years ago, both of us having had a rather long and, and complicated careers ourselves. In Robert's case, obviously on the restaurant side, most famously with Charlie Trotter and uh, me on the originally the retail side and then distribution side and import side with uh, Michael Skernick Wines and Terry Thies in New York. And also Robert worked for Vindivino and Distinctive back in the day as well. So we, about five years ago, we just decided to stop working for other people and put our resources and experience together and launch Robert Hood Wines. And that was five years ago now. And, and we're we're still a very small company, but we're having a great time. And, and think we, especially five years ago, after the, the there was a lot of consolidation in the Chicago market, especially when, when Distinctive got more or less gobbled up. And, uh, you know, before that, you know, in its own way, Vindavino. So with all the consolidation in that market, there was a real, there was a real, if not a vacuum, there was definitely an opportunity for for small companies, and that's that's really been proven true. I think that uh, you know subsequently in the in the last five years, a lot of other small companies have opened as well, and some and some really good medium sized companies too. So the, the market has become a lot more both competitive, but also I think it's servicing. There are a lot more small companies servicing the the Chicago market in a more sophisticated way than it was even five years ago. So how did you get there originally, though? You were a music student. In college. 
Yeah, that's a loaded question. <laughs> it's a my my um my original love in life and you know my original self identity was as a as a musician. I was a I was a flutist and as a as a as a young So it's not flautist, it's flutist. Well, it, the British say flautist. And, oh, okay. Uh, I think f- as an I play the flute not the flout, so I say flutist, but you know, the British say flautist, but I as an American I say flutist. You can but it, you can say either way. Um but that you know that that's really what I wanted to do as a young person and as a young teenager. I was a very serious student at a, at a certain point for flute. I was a very terrible student at everything else, which which has bearing on on what happened to me later in life for sure. But uh, and so throughout my my up you know my ups and downs in the wine business, meaning you know my my sort of periodic sabbaticals and and time in time out, I am the the flute and music in general has always kind of been sort of a security blanket when I've burned myself out in the wine business I always go back to flute and it was during one of these if if we can call it a sabbatical from the wine business that uh, I was working in Indiana again for another uh, flute manufacturer I just I just had that feeling that it was time to get back into the wine business and but I I knew I wanted to do it independently. I I knew at that point uh, in my career that I I wanted to I wanted to work for myself. I wanted to if I was going to make mistakes, I wanted to make them you know, on my nickel. I wanted to do it myself. And uh, I knew Robert from when I worked for Michael Skernick Wines and Terry Thies as a national person. I was fortunate enough to to get to meet Robert. I think the first time at Charlie Trotter's where he, you know, just rocked our world at a killer dinner there because he he was a, a great psalm on the floor. Great, great, just a pairings master. And uh, and then when uh, at one point Terry Thies and Michael Skernick hired Vin Devino to as the distributor in Illinois for the Terry Thies portfolio, and at that point Robert was managing that book and others there. So we got I got to know him a lot better there. So Robert and I had had a bit of a history uh, professionally. And when I, you know, I was I was kind of up in the air when I decided to get back in. At this point, I thought, well, you know, why don't I go back to my stomping ground where I really had my most formative experience, which was which was in New York with Michael Skernick and Terry. And but I just had this sense that guys like me in New York are a dime a dozen, you know, um, and it, it it felt like a really crowded market. And I I talked to some rents some, gone up, so it's it's actually a quarter a dozen now. Prices <laughs> okay, are higher. Right. Inflation. Just, uh, All right. Well, still a quarter. Oh, you've been out of town for a while. Yeah, so I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm surprised it's still only a quarter. But uh, wow, what a deal. Um, and I, I, I talked to some old friends in, in New York about maybe partnering up and, and doing something here, and, and some, good, some good opportunities surfaced here. In the end, you know, having talked to Robert, it just felt like this was it. This was a great opportunity. Chicago, I don't want to say Chicago needed us. Chicago's full of great wine professionals and, and good companies, but we saw an opportunity, and, and the stars lined up. I mean, within months... For example, just to give you an idea of how quickly things happened, you know, the distinctive went to Southern and the DeGrazia family, you know, Yano and and uh, Marco didn't want to go that route. They wanted to, they wanted to find another small partner because they know in the long run that's that's what's healthiest for their, for their prospects in the U.S. And so, honestly, even before we had. A license. <laughs> we we were we were shaking hands with with uh, with Marco de Grazia, and and that really got things rolling. And and things happened very quickly from from there. And I'd say a year later, it as as it seems appropriate that Robert and I would would work with Terry Thies again, and and we did. Because in terms of you know having the wine before you have the license, that's kind of how you started your career in retail, working before you were 
even legal to buy. Even right? legal. Well, yeah, I should correct myself. We 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 didn't we didn't sell any wine before right, we got right, our license, yeah. but we were already. Yeah. Let's just say we were pre-selling wine before we ha the ink was dry. That would probably be the the way to say it without getting myself in the slammer. <laughs> but but yeah, you know, my whole career started out. Um, I mean, I was a I was an underage stock boy. This was again. I was studying music at the University of Minnesota, and I had at this point already become really fascinated with wine. And fascinated not in a typical teenage. I want to. I just need you know Booze, a, a wine yeah. cooler to get to get a buzz on. Although right. unfortunately, I had that phase as a young teenager as well. But in this case, I had started in large part because of my uh, a close friend who turned out to be my brother-in-law later in life. We got into it really seriously together and would go out and buy eight or ten bottles of wine, just the two of us, and set up tastings and taste and drink and read. And and it's the reading that really mattered for me. And this, so as a nineteen-year-old, I'm. I'm in college. I already have a full studio of flute students. I don't need the money. I'm I'm making my lunch money actually teaching flute while I'm getting my my degree, which I actually never got because I ended up falling into the wine business for good. But I got this job as a stock boy because I wanted to be around it. I wanted, you know, the discount was nice. I don't know if they knew they were giving an underage stock boy a, an employee discount, but they did. And and I just started buying wine and reading like crazy. And and when I say reading, I was reading you know, this was back when, you know, Hugh Johnson was the was the voice. And so I was reading everything he wrote and I was reading um, Hyams. I don't know if you know Edward Hyams in his book, probably the most, one of the most important books I've read on wine called uh, Dionysus and uh, and Waverly Root, you know, Waverly Root's writing on food, which- She called her a, a flautist, I'm pretty sure. She, she, yeah. she said flautist. <laughs> yeah, they would, have, they would have said flautist, exactly. So, you know, so in the, in the, you know, so these books and this reading became- really a, a very intense self-directed learning process and and I say that because this was in an age where I was having kind of an intellectual explosion because up to that point I was I was a terrible student in high school I I didn't believe in learning I didn't understand the excitement of learning I was no one really connected the dots you know I was one of these typical bad students that didn't understand that there was a relationship between social studies and history and it was important to know math for all of these reasons and so i just i just wrote everything off because i was convinced i was going to be a good enough flutist that i'd get a job as a flutist and i wouldn't need all this stuff anyway turns out to be a really good flutist you need discipline and that's something that was also sorely lacking so at a certain point what happened is i had a just a an incredible kind of awakening it was actually at a, at a course in chicago i i stopped going to my music courses when i was at the at DePaul university in chicago and just started walking into other people's classes <laughs> and i went into like a i went into basically an introductory physics class kind of a physics for dummies and i can't remember the professor's name and i i i, I went through the whole thing i never i didn't even audit it i didn't sign up for it i didn't sit for the exams but i just took this course and this guy changed my life he it 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 all of a sudden something woke up in me about the process of learning. And so I approached, I started to approach wine in this self-directed way and wine became for me the platform through which I learned about everything that I had ignored as a younger high school student, history, culture, geography, biology, all of these things uh, that you're supposed to study as a high school student, at least a little bit, that I didn't. I learned through wine. And so it became a very serious study. And uh, I think it, it created a good foundation for me to, to continue. And then, and then eventually, through a series of moves, I just, I just ended up 
getting into the retail business in in Seattle. I worked for Daniel McCarthy. Um, well, actually, right before that, I worked for the 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 incredible Peter Dow at Cavatappi Winery. I was a seller rat for him. What was he like? Uh, oh, that guy really one of the most amazing guys for 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 a lot of reasons just because he really fought the system harder and more diligently than anybody i've known you know he really tried to break down these sort of idiotic legis this idiotic legislation that binds us all in the wine business and you know he had a restaurant he had a winery he had a distribution license all at the same time and the amount of, I can't imagine the amount of legal dollars he spent to make that happen for himself, but he did. So he was a really strong personality and, 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 a, and, a, and a very positive influence on me in the early days. And, and there, there have been times in my career where I wish I had hung out with him longer, but, but Dan McCarthy and Jay Shearing at McCarthy and Shearing offered me a position literally across the street from my house in Seattle, and I, I had to take it. And, and I was also really anxious to get into the retail environment where I could taste more wine. Because, and I wanted to taste more wine because I had to prove something to myself about the nature of wine and all of the reading and, and just the way, all of the self-directed learning about wine, because I wasn't reading magazines. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't looking for scores and I wasn't part of any kind of tasting culture where everybody's sitting around and looking for pencil lead and blackberries and stuff like that. For some reason, because of the things that I had read and the other kinds of, of, of learning that was going on in other subjects in my life, I, from the very beginning of my wine education, was convinced that wines exhibit characteristics of place and that one of the strongest, one of the most important measures of quality in a wine is its identity and, and our ability to recognize its origin. And, and this became a truth. And, and I believed this truth in, in my early years with an almost religious fervor. I mean, at I, a period of time when it wasn't a given actually in American culture. Yeah, I, I would say so, you know, and now it's been argued, you know, ad nauseum and, 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 and obviously we, we don't want to do that today, but, but, um, but, but that became very, very important to me. So what, what, what happened was from the very beginning, now we're talking, you know, 20, over 24 years of a life in wine so all of my experience has worked to basically reinforce the basic premise that that the most the most beautiful aspect of this of this liquid culture is is that it ex, it can express its its origin and and I believe that from the very beginning and and so when I was tasting and for all of these years of tasting thousands and thousands of wines that's what I, I was looking. So, so, you know, and eventually in Seattle, I, I was part of a tasting group called Young Tongues. It was a bunch of young kids, college kids and stuff that shopped at McCarthy and Shearing. And, and, and we, we had a great tasting group. And, the, you know, there were times where everybody's sitting around and, and power of suggestion comes up and people are looking for this and looking for that. And, and I would tune it out, man. I, I, I was really looking from the very beginning of my wine tasting years for what is Chianti about this? What is Montalcino about this? What is, what is Middle Mosul? Why and, and why? And, and I think that the human mind, I think that our cognition, and I think that the tools, the, the, the mechanisms of our, of, our, of our body, our sensory organs, and our, and our cognition put together are able to tell us these things. And I think when a wine is well made, it's in there. And so that's been, that's been the, the fascination of my career. And, and so <laughs> it's just incredible that, that later on in my career, I ended up where, where I did with, with uh, a person who, who, who has such a, who shares in a different way, for sure, similar sensibilities in, in, in Terry Thies, for example. And how did that come about? 
Well, um, I ended up leaving Seattle. I, I think I had about three years with McCarthy and Shearing, and they were great. Dan Dan McCarthy, I worked at, at his store most of the time, and he was he was a great mentor for me, a real kind soul, very knowledgeable person, and very generous in terms of sharing the amount of uh responsibility in terms of tasting. And, and I've really, so it was a great time, but my, my wife, Erica is a ballerina and she had been dancing in Seattle, which is why I ended up there. And she was fortunate enough to get a position here in New York city in American ballet theater. And she danced with that company for, I think seven or eight years total. I'm not sure. And in Seattle, I was part of a, I was kind of on scholarship in a tasting group. I think it was called the Fleckenstein imbibing panel. And this was a, this, these guys drank Lefleve and Ramonet and, and, you know, high end Sauterne and stuff like that. And it was a buy your way in group and I couldn't afford to do it, but they, I was, you know, I was, I was a vocal argumentative young guy at the time. And I think they liked having me around. I was kind of like a mascot. <laughs> so I was on scholarship at the Fleckenstein imbibing panel. And one of the, one of the tasters that would often come there from New York was a commodities uh, trader here on the old Comex at the old world trade center. And he used to buy wine through the Seattle store and we would ship it out to him here in New York. And when he found out I was moving to New, to New York, he said, hey, what are you going to do? I said, I, I don't really know what I'm going to do. He said, why don't you come down and take a look at what I do on the Comex and I'll give you a job. <laughs> so I ended up being a clerk in the silver and gold pits on the old Comex. And I lasted for 13 months. And it was, uh, I think by the end of that 13 months, I, uh, I had shaved my head. I weighed about 98 pounds, and I started every day literally shaking in my boots. And uh, people say, "Well, why? <laughs> what was so different about it?" And it, I think it's safe to say that you know you you realize at a certain point when you try to do things. And of course, I was raised. My parents were beautiful. They said, "You can do anything you want to do. You 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 can be president, Mark." Well, at a certain point, you can't. When <laughs> you've done some of the things we've done, you're right. All right, you can't be president anymore, but. But, you know, you can still do anything you want to do. But what happened was I, I really thought I could do this and thought it would be fun. I thought, you know, I had, you know, I didn't realize that the com the commodities, this is not Wall Street. This is a totally different environment than Wall Street. Commodities is very, very different. I would think of it this way, and this is how I explain it to people now. You, you have, your brain is... It's like a, you know how you can buy an Apple computer and if you want, you can go in and you can upgrade the RAM. But at a certain point, you can't upgrade the RAM anymore. It's just like done. You get, you, you know, a three-year-old model, you can get eight gigabytes of RAM and then that's it. You can't ever add any more RAM and at a certain point that computer's not going to work anymore. Well, I'm like a 512, you know, I, I, I don't even have a gig of RAM, you know. I, I, and so, and, and the kind of guys that work down there and the kind of RAM you need in that environment is so high. And, 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 and bless his heart, Evan Myers, my old boss, he, I mean, he, he tried really hard. He gave me the benefit of the doubt. And, and I picked a few things up and it was a great experience, but it didn't pan out, but it was, it was a good experience. And then, and, and it was around this time that I started looking around. I, I did some other things. I, I, Is that the terminology the gold traders use? Like they still pan for it? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Sorry. Nothing no, you know, it's pan, funny. Dude. The terminology you know, my first two weeks down there, because I, I had never lived in New York. Now I feel I've never lived anywhere more than New York. So deep down inside, I feel a little bit like a New Yorker, even though I wasn't born here. But when I first got onto the floor, I couldn't understand a word these guys were saying. They'd be two bid at a half, two bid at a half, two bid at a half. That's two bid at a half. So it's it's two bid, but it's offered at two and a half. And 
Evan says I got down there the first the first week. He's like, just just hang around and listen and and watch how things happen, and then we'll we'll get you on a phone or something. Three or four days later, I go to Evan. I'm like, Evan, I still don't know what the hell these guys are saying. I don't know what they're saying because the accent was so thick, you know. The, the, this this mix of people and accent. anyway it was it was fun I ended up doing the point clerk stuff so I was the guy doing the point stuff over to the options pit and I mean it was fun it was it was a good experience but and I think everybody realized at a certain point that we like Mark but it's time and uh, anyway so that was my commodities experience and and then um, you know I did a couple other odd things I worked uh, I worked for Nancy's on the Upper West Side for a while because it was right around the corner from my apartment they're great people and they're Riesling lovers so it was a great place for me to just Back in the day that was Riesling Central right Yeah 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 Gluckstern was you know Gluckstern was consulting there and that was right around when he was writing his book and it was a great place for me to to just kind of wait and see what I was going to do next and that's that's when um, my old commodities boss had a tasting at his house and a guy named Doug Paulaner came to the tasting who I heard had, of him Yeah Doug Polana was national sales manager, or he was the local sales manager. He, Michael wasn't national at that point, so the local sales manager for Michael Skernick Wines at the time. And I, we did this tasting, uh, I think it was a Riesling tasting, German Riesling tasting. No, actually it was a Barolo tasting. I can't remember. But if Doug it, and I hit it Doug off. If Doug was there, it's probably a Barolo Yeah, tasting. yeah, we had a good time. Um, we had a good time, and Doug, as we're leaving, Doug said, uh, what are you up to? I said, I'm, I don't know, I'm working, you know, I'm working at Nancy's, but I kind of want to do something i'd like to get deeper into the business and uh, a few days later i had my interview with michael skernick and then did you I, go in like two bit and a half two bit and a half <laughs> no i went in although i went in with a really bad suit and michael told me so <laughs> later on i mean it's hilarious later on after i was leaving for the first time because michael was actually gracious enough to hire me twice uh after i was leaving for the first time he you know, you know, he he announced to the company that I was resigning to go to Massachusetts to make flutes, which is true. And uh, he said, so this little kid in a really bad suit came into our Syosset office. And yeah, so no, I went in with a really bad suit, but Michael hired me anyway. How was the interview? It was, it was great. I mean, I, um, Michael, Michael and Harmon are, they're, they're, they're incredible guys. And they, I, I thought that I liked the interview. I got this sense that they were still, um, and they were, they and they are just young at heart and and really quality minded. Like these guys want to do good work and they wanted to do a good job. And I got this sense very early on that they, even if they're not as you know, dogmatic as I was about the whole place flavor thing, that they that they shared some of those sensibilities or or a lot of them. And and I found out later that I think that they shared a lot of them. And I didn't know during that interview that they were about to get the Terry Thies portfolio nationally. But so I just started working for them in the office on the phone, answering the phone, taking orders, you know, trying to someone calls order a case of something and you try to sell them three. You're, you're sending a truck there, try to sell three, you know, just trying to just trying to do 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 the wine business, try to sell more wine. We had Terry Thies locally. So I was helping with the Terry Thies tastings at that point. They knew I was a Riesling fanatic already. I was very enthusiastic. I was an enthusiastic guy whenever after the Friday sales meetings. We would all drink. We just start. We call it back then. We called it hatchet. We would hatchet a bunch of wines after the sales meeting. I mean, way too many. I mean, just go crazy. And we do them blind sometimes. And I was always a really enthusiastic. I mean, I used to do this thing where I'd say, "If this isn't, if this isn't Brunello, fire me now." And I'm telling you, man, I've been fired from Skernick so many times. Um, 
for that. It's it, so we we had great. This was for me. It was a golden era, and I think it it was a it was a beautiful time in in Skernik's history too, because they were just on the cusp of this 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 national expansion, this this big growth spurt with the Terry Thies portfolio and the national thing, and and that was uh, I was just I was in the right place at the right time, and they they had already built this infrastructure as a company that they were ready for success. I mean, that, and that's that's the beauty of of Michael Skernick Wines is that they they just they built from the very beginning. They built this incredible infrastructure. And what what was that? I mean, what is well, that mostly like? people. They yeah. I don't know how they do it. They they just find incredible people. I mean, look at all of the people that have gone through there. You know, Doug David Bowler, Doug Polaner, Liz Willett, Michael Wheeler. You know, I mean, I. I don't want to offend anybody by forgetting, but the, you know, there are just so many people, a lot of them whose name is on the letterhead now. And but the thing about Michael Skernick wines is one, they never miss a beat. They've grown, they grow every single, they grow all the time. And if you take the if you take the gross domestic domestic product of all those other companies, and all the people that have left, if you add up their their GDP, it's still smaller than Skernick's. Skernick's the biggest and the best. And 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 it's just because they and they've just got this knack for for bringing in good people. And I, I so I you know I really have a, a great deal of respect to this day for them. They they were great to me. But the big the best opportunity I ever had with them was when was when they went national with Thies because here all of a sudden was this crazy guy who in his own in his own unique way and I, I think we would all agree that Terry's ter- a unique intellect in the wine world just the, this was this was just like a, a lightning bolt for me that how did it come together for you like well I was I was working in the office I mean I was just doing I was I was an office guy I was I was training I was taking the Long Island Railroad out to Syosset every morning taking a cab to the office doing whatever I was told and trying to do it really well and one day, Terry Thies was coming to town, and something was brewing, and I heard that they were getting this from Kronheim, that they were getting all this stuff, and I'm like, wow, that's Because that used to be his cool. old distributor. Yeah, yeah. I said, that's, that's cool. This is exciting. And um, they, uh, Michael and Harmon and Terry took me to dinner at Windows on the World. And uh, was sit, sitting up at Windows on the World, having a great dinner, and they told me what was going on, and they said we'd we'd like you to work in, in this new division, and uh, and work work with Terry. And that seems like a lot of trust. You'd only been there a short time. Well, not not just that I'd been there a short time, but that I was young. I mean, I was a young person, and 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 they, you know, we would all learn later on. I would, you know, in in many respects, very immature. And, and so they, yeah, they, it was a big vote of confidence and, and a lot of faith on, on their end. But it was, I mean, I, I'm the kind of person when an opportunity like that comes up, you know, yeah, sure. I can speak Chinese. No, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be, I'll see you in Beijing next week. Okay. I gotta get, uh, what's that? Uh, How do you language? say if it's not a Brunello, <laughs> fire me in <laughs> yeah. Chinese. Right. Yeah. Exactly. You know, so, um, yeah, so it, it no, I want to, I want to grab the opportunity and I did. And, and later on, you know, eventually that, that position grew to, to be their national sales manager, but we had, so what does that mean in reality? What's that mean for people who don't know? The well, business? that means, well, what that meant in the early days was, we had to build 
something that wasn't there. We had to build the infrastructure for a national division that didn't exist. I mean, so we're taking a New York, New Jersey distributorship, and then we have to get... So what we had, they had uh, just hired Liz de Caesar, who is a machine. And uh, But yeah, she worked there for a long time. And um, Angela Criscoli from, from Winebow had come over because she had national experience. And after kind of getting things set up, I think she ended up going back to Winebow. But it was basically the three of us working all hours getting the compliance set up. And this is the old days when compliance was unbearable. You know, you had to actually have a physical label of every wine. You had to fill out a, a hard copy of a label approval form, and you had to have different ones for different states. I mean, the, the amount of work it took, and and we were the, you know, we, we did it all together. And then I was like the cheerleader. I was the guy that got, had to go around the country talk to old distributors and new distributors, in some cases fire distributors and find new ones. And, you know, that was a hard part of the business. That was the business end of the business. And, and, but, but to me, it was like, it was, I was, it was easy. Those days were easy for me because I felt like I was proselytizing. You know, I, I felt like I was, I was, I was out just doing, selling incredible wine and, and, and it was also easy from the standpoint that these wines were still at that point, very much a revelation to a lot of people. And so what wins are we talking about? Well, we, this was the very, well, this was predominantly Germany and Austria, and this was the very infancy of the, of the, the Recolton Manipulant, the grower champagne category as well, just, just subsequent to, to all that. So, but it was mostly Grüner I mean, you know my handle. I mean, ever since they, when they hired me at Michael Skernick Wines, I was Veltliner one at Skernick Wines, and I've had that handle everywhere. Who's two and three? I've never been I don't know. I don't know, but I want to know who, because I tried Veltliner first and it was taken. So I don't know. I got to find out. I should. I should put a shout out to who's who's Veltliner, but so I'm 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 Veltliner one. I mean I, I love I love Riesling. I love Veltliner. I love uh, and 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 obviously I love Grower Champagne. So it, this was this was kid and candy shop stuff. This was a work, you know. I I felt like I was on scholarship at Michael Skernick Wines, just getting paid to do the easiest, most fun kind of kind of stuff in the in the world. And, you know, there were bad days. And I think that's kind of what burned me out eventually was just the realization that, you know, I think there were a couple of days where I woke up, maybe, maybe I had to do some hard work, you know, I had to fire a distributor or, 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 or you know, and I'm just like, wait a minute. You mean, all 365 days aren't going to be fun? Can, can I just go, can I just go sell some Riesling or something? You know, I mean, so, you know, again, remember, I was young. So there were a lot of aspects of just being in business and doing business and negotiating. When you're young, every a lot of aspects of a negotiation become a mushroom cloud for you when they shouldn't. They become, you know, it just becomes another point that you got to register, you got to sit on, you got to settle down. And it doesn't have to blow the whole thing up. And, and, and I, you know, I, I learned that the hard way. Like there's that guy saying, oh, we don't want to go with you on this. And you're like, if you don't believe in me on, <laughs> on the pencils, how can you believe in me in the big picture? I'm out of here. Yeah, you yeah, know what you I know, mean? I think. And, like you that know, kind of stuff? Because I do that. So I, No, yeah. No, know. I'm a, I was, yeah, I had a lot to learn. And I had a lot to learn in it. And, and I, it took me a long time to learn those things. I'm still, I'm still learning. And that, that's why one of the reasons Robert Hood and I are such great business partners. Because in that respect, he's, 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 his, his frontal lobe is a little more developed in that respect than mine. And my wife would say, she's, she's, my wife's fond of saying that my frontal lobe is just now getting to basically my 20s. So, you know, but, so we're, yeah, we, we're, he's much slower to reaction than I am. And, and so as a, as, a, as a company, we work better. And, and there are a lot of times where I, I just forward an email to him and, and wait. 
and a lot of times the waiting is the better thing to do. And that's something that I, I wasn't mature enough to know. So, but anyway, that wasn't the, the point of the question. The question is, how did it all happen? And, and that's how it happened. And, and so I became Terry's um, right-hand man at Skernick. So what um, was that like? That was, oh my God, this was, this was the, these were, these, these were the golden, I, I reflect back on those and everything has a halo around it. Just that beautiful setting sun, golden glow. And, and, uh, because, because I got to travel right away. I was spending a month every year in Germany with Terry, two, two to three weeks a year in Austria, week and change in Champagne. Uh, and then I was usually going there for another reason on my own or, or, or for some other reason or for a customer trip or something like that. So I was getting to, because what, what, what was starting to happen to me was I, you know, and I, I had been to origin before that, not very much, but I had this very, very strong kind of philosophical framework, this sort of uh, value system about wine. And I had a bunch of book smarts. What was missing was a little bit of dirt under my fingernails and the people. And what the first, those, those early years at Skernick and with Terry was, was, was the opportunity to go visit the growers themselves. And I drove Terry crazy. Believe me, I think, I, I, I don't know how many times he, he second guessed himself <laughs> because, you know, Terry was already had a fully formed sensibility about wine and the way he tastes, which is not to ask, what is the residual sugar? He already knows the soil composition. He doesn't even like to go in the cellars anymore because he knows what kind of vessels are down there, you know? And it's cold. <laughs> it's cold and damp, you know. Terry goes on these trips. One, he's a gatekeeper. He's he's the still the staunchest gatekeeper I know in the wine business. It, and and I respect him for that. And and I, I I I I because he makes choices. He just doesn't take the entire production hook, line, and sinker. He it has to conform. That's not to say he doesn't pass up really beautiful wines, and that's not to say every once in a while he doesn't make a mistake. But he he's choosing the wines based on his framework of values, and and I respect that. And so he already had that set up. Meanwhile, he's got this young kid in Germany for the first time, asking a million questions and asking the same questions of each grower, getting very different answers sometimes. By the way, which is part of the fascination of it, was you don't always get the same answers to the same questions, even from even in the same country, but. But so I was trying to fill my head at this time with as much information as I, as I could that would bolster my understanding of why the wines taste the way they do. It was also a bit, a bit of intimidation. You know, I had to come back to the U.S. and sell the wines. And when you're a young person in the wine business and you know you're going to be going and selling to guys that have 20 years on you in, in the business, you, you, you want to kind of establish some credibility. I think this is one of the reasons that the, this, this, the new SOM program or the, these, these programs are so popular is, is, is there's, a, there's an inclination to uh, justifiably to, 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 to earn credibility in the business. You mean like somehow. the master's Yeah, the program. MS program. The, so, so which if you want, we can touch on later, but because I think it's pertinent, especially in the Chicago market. But, but anyway, so I was trying to fill this. And, and, and you know, there were a couple of times where Terry said, Mark, just relax. You don't have to know that because Terry's sitting there tasting the wine. He's letting the the wine wash over him, that vintage of a wine he already knows really intimately. And for me, it's all brand new. So he was, everybody was really patient with me. You are harsh in his chill sometimes. Yeah, I think so. But he, but he, he always, he always, I was, he always let me come along for the ride. And there was one day when we we came out to our car from a visit somewhere. I think we were in the Rheinhessen or something, and and there was some local band 
called the Horny Funk Brothers that was playing locally that night. <laughs> and they put it under his windshield wiper. And we took a picture of ourselves with this Horny Funk Funk Brothers. And so from then on, he and I were the, the Horny Funk Brothers. And, and, and we had, I would say that those years with, with Terry and and on the other side, state side, the the years learning the other aspects of the business with Michael and Harmon are definitely the most formative of, of my career. And I, I I am deeply indebted. I, I dare say you and I wouldn't be sitting here talking if I didn't if I hadn't been basically, you know, banking on on the credibility that I earned with them all those years ago. So was it different to sell Germany than Austria? And was it different to sell either of those than Champagne? Yeah, I find it to be very, very different. And it saddens me that they continue to be different for the same ways, for the same reasons. Um, and several I'm, years later. Several years later, I'm one of the things that makes me com the saddest in the wine business is that I still have to make the same arguments about German Riesling. But to answer your question specifically, at that time, Austria was the fetish. And we... We're blessed to have this incredible network of psalms that just got on the Austria band bandwagon We're all about around the late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so Austria became really easy, and it was just explosive. And and Germany, I, I think, was also happening in a lot of good ways. I think at the same time, the, that same group of trend-setting psalms or markets that would, I don't want to call it trend but you know the market makers the people that that are exercising influence and not they're driving the boat not water skiing you know that you know what I'm talking about the psalms that are actually driving the boat and creating demand for stuff that they believe in also believed in German Riesling and and I I, I think so there was this swell of of interest on the restaurant side that 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 trickled down to retail as well and so I think that there was growth in that and then when champagne came, and 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 but but the the conversation at the point of sale was always very different. With Germany, it, it's it's very easy to have your tail between your legs because the because the wine has residual sugar. With Austria, you have your tail between your legs because it doesn't have residual sugar, and you're trying to explain that it doesn't, even though the shape of the bottle looks that way and it's German on the label and blah blah blah. I mean, I think most of your audience is this is this is remedial for them, but but. I still do consumer tastings and I still, I still find, I, I just did a huge tasting a, a few weeks ago for a big customer. I found myself having the same conversations that I was having back in the, in the, the, in the very, very old days. Truth is I like having those conversations because it's an opportunity to see a glimmer of realization on someone's eyes and, 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 and change perceptions. But, but those conversations are always very, very different. And, um, now I find, in my opinion, I'm, I'm finding both Germany and Austria a little bit difficult to sell, but grower champagne is no brainer. Champagne just the, and now the conversations that we have about grower champagne are completely different. Um, How so? Well, in the old days, it was, it was such a small market share and it was harder to convince people that these no names were quality. And so at least for me, the conversation oftentimes started by distinguishing the methodology between negotiant and recoltant in terms of what's different about the way they grow and make wine that affects quality. Specifically, I mean, more in the way that it's grown. And most importantly, how is it that negotiant wines are made that negates the thumbprint of origin uh, that growers are doing? And this, so the conversation inevitably had had a a, a, um, a little bit of a flavor of hostility towards the negotiant. It became it became a, a, a rather offensive 
conversation. And and now I think even with the young Psalms, even with the Psalms that weren't around for the the beginning of this category, you don't even have to go there really. I think I think that a, I would argue that a lot of you know the most advanced and sophisticated buyers in 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 the in the metropolitan markets just accept that champagne can be treated like Burgundy and it can be bought by origin and that the growers qualitatively actually represent better value than the negos. So the conversation doesn't, it's no longer sort of a, a rudimentary justification of the category. It's, it's just talking about the quality and the place. And maybe the allocation. Like bro, yeah, why yeah, can't yeah, I and, and oh yeah, oh yeah. And by the March way, I'm sorry, and... we're gonna sell out of Peters in October this year, right. not December. So how much do you want? You know, yeah, that's that's part of the conversation, and and I'm really excited. And and that that happened, and you know, that happened because of a lot of people, a lot of people on your side of the business for sure. Yeah, but you're the guy who introduced me to Pierre Peters Special Reserve '97, which became Chetion later, and I remember goosebumps. Like that was one of the times where. Like shit got very real. Time slowed down, and like hair went up on my my arm. Oh, I'm I'm glad you remember that. And I remember I remember the day we we drank that down in in Florida. And and um, but and you were one of the staunchest supporters down there. But no, it, it's been it's been a lot of years of a lot of people. I think I think the the success of the category is proof that that Terry's writing has an impact. Um, very much, and his catalog uh, specifically is is a great resource. I think one, if I would be remiss not to credit Kevin Pike, you know, I mean, the 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 early years of that, my first tenure at Skernick, where Michael built the infrastructure, it was like a racetrack, you know, and I got to run around it, and all I had to do, but, and, and, you know, I had, <laughs> but I wasn't really a serious, I mean, I, I was like that hard on your sleeve, enthusiastic guy. I had, I drink Riesling written on the front of my body and face paint and drink Gruner Vethliner on my back and I'm high five in the crowd and, and I've got a baton in my hand. And eventually, you know, as happens at Skernick, you're going to hand the baton off to somebody that somebody's going to take the next leg of this relay. And, uh, it just so happened. I, my baton went to Kevin Pike and it was like handing the baton to Hussein Bolt. <laughs> You know what I mean? And he burned up the track. I mean, so Kevin, it was just a beautiful handoff. I mean, it was the right person at the right time. And 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 later on, actually, I came back to work for Skernick again and, and worked under Kevin and nationally. So, so, so what did you see working with Kevin? The guy, an absolute machine. I mean, just, and as I, I think in, in many respects, but especially when it came to champagne, I, I think that he developed some of the best language for for promoting that category and and the best methodology of of the you know a balance between education and 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 romance but but i mean he's he's a he's a real logically minded guy so you know whereas i'm really i'm i'm for me it's the place the place the place and i i'm 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 probably a little too romantic about the place and and maybe not even as objective and i think with kevin he really really consolidated the the information about what it is you know objectively that makes these wines taste and drink the way they do and 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 so anyway we we it's, all have it seems to me that. that these really made education marketing work we used to read the dusty hugh johnson books and then they took this idea and i say they you know because multiple people, but they took the idea that education could also be marketing, and they really touched people with that and changed some things. And then, you know, that's normal now. That's a normal insight now. Yeah, well, I wish it... I, I agree with you, but I think that there... And this kind of brings up a, a sensitive subject for us is, you know, the whole 
there there is there is also a culture in 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 at work here the 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 young Sam culture the, the you know the students of the MS program that that I think are are cynical about people in the trade like us because they think that our attempts at education are just simply salesmanship and um you know, it's, <laughs> I was talking to Robert about this, you know, I told Robert that I was going to be talking to you and it's, 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 it's ironic that, I mean, he ought to be here with me. Um, but I told him I might need a lifeline. I don't know if you ever do that. <laughs> can I, I'm sorry, Larry, can I get a lifeline? Cause you know, because with the phone a friend and, and phone a friend, yeah, phone a friend. So I want to phone a friend and phone Robert because Robert's the Psalm side. He comes from the Psalm business and the, Robert was a, was a monster on the floor. I mean, this is a guy that, worked in a kitchen where the food that came out of there, you don't know what was going to happen on a busy night at Charlie Trotter's in the day. You know what I mean? And you had to have, you had to have an arsenal of secret weapons and an intellect to use them to do these, these off the cuff pairings and stuff like that. And you've worked in places like this as well. So you know what I'm talking about. This is a different kind of Psalm. I definitely culture. remember a chef who would strike out, you know, menu items on a, in a, in a thing and write something else. Yeah. A la minute. Oh yeah. You know? We're going to do this. And you know, and so, you know, sometimes I mean, that's... you'd figure it out as it was going to the table. You would see what was going to be served to them as it was leaving the kitchen. Right. And, <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, that doesn't say foie gras on my sheet, you know? Yeah. That kind no, of stuff. I, I've been sitting at the table when it happens, you know, and, 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 you know, when you eat out with Terry Thies, this happens all the time. And so I've watched it happen. And, and you, you see, you either see panic or you, or you see a train wreck or you see a beautiful pairing. And, but the point, my point is that, you know, Robert Hood, my business partner, is this incredible wealth of knowledge for the Somme on the, on the pairing side. I would consider myself, perhaps not a wealth, but certainly somebody who's spend a lot of time at origin. You know what I mean? If I were going to war, yeah, I'd want to, I'd want to remember all my basic training, but I probably want to get behind the guy that had been there for a year or two already. You know what I mean? So, so, but all, a lot of my attempts over the years to share knowledge, not in a, I'm trying to sell you way, share knowledge with, with student psalms has been rejected uniformly. And, and I'm talking, when I say share knowledge, I'm like, look, I'll put together two or three mixed cases of German and Austrian wine and we'll just taste them blind. We can taste them unblind. I'll tell you where they're grown, why they taste like, and, and I'll walk away. I just want to do, I just want to help you because I want to see you pass. If it's important to you to get lettered, let me help you. Only one Psalm's ever taken up my invitation in all these years. And I, and I, so it makes me sad. It's another part of the business that makes me sad that, that this it's, it's becoming kind of clubby it's clicky you know what i mean um and i don't understand why i i if you know if this can be a platform for for talking to to people i just wish that there are a way that that those of us on the merchant side of the, the commercial side of the business the guys that make wine go from the winery to your restaurant we're in the wine business because we love it too guys and girls <laughs> you know we love it and we've loved it for a long time and we still do and if we've got something we want to share why not take us up let's get together let's drink some wine and and um if you succeed you know of course yeah we're gonna we're gonna hope we earn an audience with you at some point but that's not what it's about it's about the love of wine and personal enrichment what else has changed in terms of you know you guys do import you do distribution you do clearing wine from other importers and you do direct import has the culture of direct import become more and more of a thing 
in the last, say, 10 years? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't have commercial numbers to, to verify statistically how much it has. I mean, for us, it's a, it's a growing part of our business. It's, it's always a little bit of a delicate part of, of our growth because we have responsibilities to our national companies as well. So we, we, and we try our very best to be sensitive to that. I mean, sometimes things happen where we'd just be dumb not to do it, but we try to be sensitive. For example, if, if something were to come up in Italy that was in direct conflict with, with our work with Mark de Grazia, we, we have to look at that in a different way, but our, yeah, our direct imports grow and, but they tend to grow organically in areas where we feel underserviced by the national importers or in categories where the national importers are really just propped up. There are countries where the, where the predominance of the national, the, that third tier, are just calling it in now. And there's so much opportunity for small companies like us that aren't thinking about the whole country. Robert and I don't have really any, any interest in selling to other markets. We want to service Illinois. And if we find a property in an Appalachian that isn't imported into Illinois and we dig the wine and we believe in it and, and we want to put Robert Hood's name on that back label, I mean, we're really proud of Robert Hood Wine's back label. And if we, if we put our back label on it and we feel good about it, then the opportunity, the net opportunity is for the drinker because we've cut a tear out. You know, we don't, we don't pad those wines a little bit. We try to make a little more because our cost of doing business is higher on those. Because you got to fill out some forms for them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have a little more work. So we try to stuff. make a couple more points yeah, on that you have stuff. To bring but, it over. but the, the opportunity is that that's a, that's a, a wine in a category that reaches the market for, for better value. It's less to the consumer than it would be if there was another tier. Yes. Yeah, and so that's an oppor- that's an opportunity. And I think that's one of the reasons that the category is growing. I think the category is also growing because there's more and more companies sprouting up like mine and Roberts where people are just just going direct and doing it. And so what remains to be seen is how many of those companies survive and for how long and whether whether the market accepts their gatekeeping as good quality control. So what would gatekeeping really look like or what would it not look like if it wasn't there? I think you'd start to see more and more mediocrity coming in the direct import realm. And and I think it already exists. I, I think that there are plenty of wines that somebody has an opportunity to do and, oh, I, I can have a Sancerre that I don't have to buy from a, a national company. And it's fine, but it's not Great. And so just because it's in the market doesn't make it a, a beautiful example of its of its Appalachian name. You know that from all your years <laughs> having to slog through it. So wh- I think what'll happen over time is is some of these companies will earn credibility on their decision and and some won't. And and then there's there's all there's all kinds of gray area too. Like we Robert and I, one of my favorite people in the business, one of I think one of the the great palettes that Robert and I work with right now is Thomas Calder. And just about everything, every time this guy gives us a name, we're blown away. And uh, he's the guy that introduced us to Stefan Tiso, a, a winery. I think right now uh, I drink more Tiso in my house than anything else. I'm obsessed with Tiso right now. And Thomas Calder introduced us and, and continues to. And he's not a national importer. He, he's an agent, but he's an agent I would call him a skinny middleman. He's got he's got his belt tightened all the way to the last hole. You know what I mean? And and we know that because I mean we we do, we do the background work. We we know what the prevailing rates for certain things are, and and so we know more or less what everybody's margins are. And Thomas works tight, and so we're we're able to come to market with value with him and superlative quality. So there's a lot of exciting stuff going on in the wine world right now. 
that I think is ultimately has the potential to raise the quality, but also has the potential to make it even more demanding on the buyer to take all those calls, to take all, all those stuff. calls and to know who's gatekeeping and who's just, who's just filling categories. Oh, I got to have a Sancerre, got to have a Pui Fume, got to have this, got to have this and just go find one. It takes time. It takes a long time to find the stuff you like. And what Robert and I have determined absolutely to do is not to build categories, but to wait for the right wines. And that's more or less what we do. We have basically almost no domestic wine in our portfolio because we're just slowly waiting. We have Illinois Sparkling Company, which we're really excited about. Method Champenoise wine from Illinois. And we just picked up Pearl Morissette from Canada and uh, Bow and Arrow from Oregon. Those, that's it for domestic wine, you know. But why might someone become a direct importer if they weren't going to be a gatekeeper? I mean, what would lead them to then do the job? Well, I, I think it could potentially happen for a couple of reasons. One, they started a wine company and they don't have a national agency. They, they want to hit certain goals in terms of sales, but they, they didn't sign a national portfolio, so they don't really have a choice. Or they see an opportunity to go direct and make a, a significantly bigger margin on the business. And that's just simply not the way we, we do it. We try to kind of work a, a kind of an average margin across our company, and we know, what, you know, we know what we have to do for our model. And the direct imports don't get significantly higher prices than, than the, the three-tier stuff. So I think that's part of the reason. There are a lot of companies springing up because they want to get into the wine business, but they don't have a big national agency to basically plug and play a couple million dollars of revenue and, and, and 60 or 70 properties. And so they got to go find them themselves. And what does finding it themselves look like? Just read some websites. You know, you, you see a lot of, you, you see a lot, I think a lot of people that, that have started a wine business because they, they were an attorney or a pediatrician or something and they traveled in Europe and they got really passionate about wine and food and, and they started a wine company. And um, so maybe in those cases, and I'm, I'm not disparaging that, that way of starting a wine business, more power to you, you know, um, maybe their way of, 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 portfolio selection is the wines they fell in love with during their travels. And maybe they're very, very good wines. That would be one way. Another way is to start a small company and watch things peel off from the bigger ones, you know, because one of the triages is this is happening all the time in the business. And a producer has a falling out with the importer. Yeah. And- well, a lot of times the big national books get so big that they can't, they can't in the realm of, of reality, service the entire portfolio and keep everybody happy. Sometimes somebody leaves because they're malcontented for the wrong reasons. Like they, they actually had, they were buying all their wine all the time, and, but they're still unhappy for some reason. I mean, there, there's, sometimes there's no logic in this. Again, I'm not going to name names, but we all know uh, <laughs> it's happened. And then sometimes it's just that a category got too crowded within a particular portfolio, and there's two or three at the bottom that just that just aren't getting enough attention. And there's, you know, it's a natural evolution for those producers to, to move on. And, and so they're going to start asking around on their own behalf at that point. And, and that's another way that, that a smaller company uh, that's starting out might, might find other producers. So what's the benefit of a national importer if so many people are doing direct import? I mean, what does being a national importer bring to the table on either finding the producer side or on the selling side that makes it worthwhile for someone to pay the higher cost? I would say, and I think I alluded to it earlier with the concept of value added, if we put this into pure business school terms, 
that additional tier, that additional margin going to someone should should have some value added and it, and it shouldn't just be a legacy. That's I guess that's my point. And it, and it brings me full circle around again to the concept of gatekeeping. And there's nothing more frustrating as a distributor when you've been buying something for 5 years and you run out of a vintage and you you didn't make it to you haven't been to the property you didn't make it to whatever fair it gets tasted at and you and on spec you order that sixth year of a wine that you that's really part of your core program um and it didn't work it's a failure you know your gatekeeping failed at that point too but also you know at the national tier you, you know it just went through by you know, it just went through, and and it's, and it's so a legacy. Me, it's like the yeah, because it, your dad went to Yale, and you know he's an alumni or a good school. Yeah, it doesn't have to be Yale, you know, and and you're his kid. You get in, even though you're not that bright. That yeah, kind of thing, and right? and so the contrast to that, to, to name a specific company, would be with I'm not I'm not here to cheerlead for for Terry Thies, but it's inevitable to do it because he's uh, he's a guy that that does this every year at every property for every wine. He goes through and tastes the wine and says, every single one. Maybe and, I'll take this one. Yeah, maybe and, I won't. You know, and it used to drive us crazy. And I, I mean, some, because there were times where he would reject a wine that sold really well the f- previous year, and all of us on the commercial side were going, "Terry, come on, man!" And Terry would say, "No, I don't, don't want to do it." And it, it's awkward when you're sitting in front of the grower, but that's that's what that portfolio does. And whether you agree with Terry's sensibilities or not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that Terry's always right, although I will tell you most of the time he is. What I'm saying is that he has a frame of he has a framework of values and he he adheres to them. And so you can have a certain sense of confidence when you if you're in a position where you got to order something that you haven't gotten to taste that it's going to conform to a certain standards and and I because I think, as a buyer there's a lot of times when you haven't had a chance to try something or if you're going to dedicate an hour to one appointment you want to know that there's a good shot that it's going to be good even if you haven't tried it yet. Right. Yeah. So, so, and I don't think that every company does that. I mean, they they, they kind of get their 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 stable of of producers, and it's 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 an offer. And you know what? Th- that works too because a lot of times those producers are so good that yeah, well, this is the way it is. This is the way it works. And then and you're still given the choice to choose from them, if if you want to. It's just you at that point you have to do the picking and choose. You're doing the gatekeeping. So where's the value added? And then, of course, the other issue is who's building the demand? Who's getting the wines in front of the press? Who's really soliciting the article on this in this magazine? Who, who, who's, who's doing the work to continue to cultivate an image for, for that back label? I think it could be argued that not all of them do. So I think that this creates potentially weaknesses in these larger books that producers will continue to peel off and, and go direct. But again, we, we're, Robert and I are really happy with the, the companies that we work with, both direct and the large portfolios that we work with. So, um, But 10 years from now, what's the market look like? Is it going to be more and more and more small guys? Or is it going to be large companies are going to become medium companies because so much is peeled away? Is it going to be room for everybody? Are there going to be large companies and tiny companies everywhere? Or are there going to be a lot of consolidation of tiny companies? Is, there, is it going to become like an umbrella for tiny companies? I don't What's know. going to happen? I have no idea. I mean, I think if, if you assume that the legislation doesn't change, which is safe to assume because if you remember who pays for this legislation... Uh, the deepest pockets want to perpetuate the system the way it is. And I don't, I can't predict that any collective of small distributors or collective of retailers or whatever can, can really defeat this kind of system. So if we assume that the legislation doesn't change, I think that the cycle of consolidation, fragmentation, upstarts, growth, consolidation, 
upstarts will continue to go. Uh, and I, I think that, I mean, I'm only 24 years in this business. I, I think you've had some real veterans on the show that, that might have a different outlook or a, a more accurate one. But if I had to predict, I, I just think that, you know, the, the small guys, some of them are going to grow. They're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna merge. Maybe they're gonna, they're gonna, cons they're gonna get consolidated with medium-sized companies, and eventually those companies will get bought by the big guys, and all those portfolios will get put under thumb and ignored to the point where they, some upstart, starts up again. That's so it's like Ibn Khaldun. Like every fourth generation, there's a revolution. Okay. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I can't. I don't see evidence that any other thing is is in the works. With even with all the DI work, I think that's still the way things are gonna. That's that's the that's what I think. But I mean, compliance has gotten easier. Global communication so much easier. People can use a GPS to find a guy. There seems like more coverage in terms of wine guides in, ter in terms of what's available today than when I started. You know, I can open up a thing, find this guy's address, give him a call. Oh, you're not imported. You know, like yeah. all of that seems much easier. Like that seems different. Yeah, I I agree and. And I mean that, and that's a good point. I think I think that there will continue to be a proliferation of of small companies that do direct importing. And now, and I want to assure everybody, this isn't a, a plug for 750, but I know they sponsor your podcast, and they just moved to Chicago, and I'm ecstatic because I met with them just last week, and I cannot wait. I said, when can we start? Yesterday, I, I cannot wait. But when you when you when you take a more and more complicated and diverse distributor network, uh. In the absence of a, a tool like that, it, it's going to be really hard work. But now, now when you add something of a resource site like 750 into the mix, it all of a sudden it starts to make a different kind of sense for for the small distributors. It's going to be it, it, there's some da there's some dangers in that as well. The trolls that are going to go in and put you know get everybody's prices and put it on Wine Searcher for a buck a bottle over cost. I mean, we have some risks. We're running some risks here as well. But I think the net. The, on the balance, the the benefit is going to be big for us, absolutely, uh, and and I think it's going to be a benefit to all small distributors. And I and I can't wait. I can't wait. I think I think our buyers are going to be really jazzed about this. So, what's the Chicago scene look like today? I think it's a really interesting scene. Actually, it's the especially for food. I I have to say, uh, in the food sense, I I like Chicago. It's not as dense as New York, in in that there aren't. There just aren't as many restaurants. I mean, Chicago is not nearly as big a city, and there, there you don't have as many per capita restaurants. And and, but I I think that the food scene is is really uniquely Chicago in in so many respects, as you know, with with all the the legacy of of inventive cuisine that exists there. I think we're right. We're still kind of at a transition where the the market is growing in sophistication in terms of wine, and I think that's in large part because the pendulum away from consolidation is really only five or six years old, and so I mean we have a lot of new companies starting up. I mean in close proximity to us, Tenzing started up, and they're very very cool and very sophisticated company with a lot of good people, and we have a lot of other really friendly competitors that that are doing this and, and all kinds of things springing up. So I think that's really Really benefiting the market a lot. A kid comes in the door, he gets hired at a wine distributor. He's been there a couple weeks, maybe a month. What would you tell him? Just keep working and keep learning. And don't, I guess what I would say now, and it, it touches on our earlier conversation, is don't be afraid to self-direct your learning. It's important to earn credibility, and I applaud all the attempts at accreditation going on in the market now. But the some of the best learning you can do 
is on your own. You can't believe everything you read, especially in a computer, but dig up, get get some big old dusty books and just start reading, start drinking and, and start learning. And, and believe in wine is something that can enrich your life and can teach you about uh, history and culture and people and, and can be made into a career and uh, and have a great time at it. Mark Hutchins of Robert Hood Wines. He's been learning for many years now, and he continues to do so every day. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Mark Hutchins. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.